Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 142. This interview is with Mark Thompson, a world-renowned executive coach who works with top business figures and legends such as Richard Branson and Charles Schwab, and previously with Steve Jobs. He's a best-selling author of three business books, including Success Built to Last. And in this chat, we get an inside view on the way that Charles Schwab took the digital revolution in stride. We also discuss the challenge for leaders today, an inspiring discussion. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T.com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. So, Mark Thompson, you and I have uh, known each other over the years. Great to have you on the show. So Thank tell you so us, much. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're up to, and what is your mindset? Well, you know, I've... Uh... I think I've had such a wonderful adventure having an opportunity to meet you, and, and I think, didn't we meet once uh, first, I think, at TED or at the World Economic Forum or yeah, Southwest, by Southwest, and that says around. something about our learning mindset. I think we're, we're both uh, so hungry to be able to learn and share and, frankly, pay it forward because we both had successful corporate careers, and, and I think that uh, at this point in our lives, we really feel like we can give back and, and mm-hmm. have an impact and and then learn more uh, right. because we're, we're always kind of greedy for information and greedy in only those ways and then try to find ways to, to serve others. So in, in, in my career, I've had the privilege of being able to work with three of the more exciting entrepreneurs uh, who've created built-to-last organizations, uh, Richard Branson, Charles Schwab, and, and um, Steve Jobs at Apple, and uh, Charles Schwab not knowing uh, perhaps all over the world, he's as best known as the other two entrepreneurs. But what he did is really democratize financial services for the individual investor at a time when only Wall Street provided uh, high-end services and investment advice and low-cost uh, financial services to institutions. He was able to bring that kind of popularize a marketplace where everyone had equal access. That's something taken for granted in an internet world now. Yeah. But he did that in the 70s and 80s. We took it public in 87, just before the great crash of 1987. Right. Uh, and uh, so they, they always talk about the gray hairs coming early and, and building your character. Well, we we took the stock from 16 to 6 in a single day, and yeah. uh, it stayed there for five years. And every quarter, we were challenged by uh, not almost uh, making uh, uh, our net regulatory capital requirements and and losing money for years and it really allowed us I think to understand how important it is to serve customers build long-term relationships and never ever rest on your laurels and and lose any sense of arrogance that usually comes quickly from success but instead always reinventing yourself always asking the question how can we make you the client successful today Mm -hmm. and today Schwab has over three trillion dollars in customer assets Mm -hmm. when the crashes came in the most recent cycle the market share of Schwab increased because they were partnering with the customer they were never involved in the 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 fancy uh, sizzling sexy securities business that drove everything off the cliff they were boring and solid and consistent and uh, and always the friend Trust of the customer. Me. So I'm kind of proud of how they did no during all of that. Well, you know, uh, there's this great study about um, 
analysts, institutional investor analysts on, in, on Wall Street, because I worked on Wall Street and I was actually yes. working yes. on Wall Street in 1987 at that crash. So I saw the I tickers. I remember standing on your desk and thinking about whether you'd run a jump out the window. Absolutely. <laughs> <clears throat> this is right in front of the World Trade Center, too. Um, so uh, you, you've got um, this, this, these 5,000 II analysts that have been observed. And, and what they did is they looked at um, what would constitute or pre predict success for these institutional investors if they move from one bank to another? And the only uh, stati statistically viable common factor was uh, that they were a women. And the interesting, <laughs> the interesting thing uh, about that was why were these women successful or predictably successful having moved from one bank to the other was that they didn't have time to do the hot sizzle. What they did is they spent their time worrying about the client. So they would work nine to five, and then from five to ten, they have to go home, quote unquote, right? They'd go home and take care of their family, whereas the, the male institutional investors would be worrying about internal politics, career pathing, the next promotion, and also smoking cigars and going to have a whiskey with the boys after work. And so this whole that part of the socializing was not so easy to do for the female analysts in this survey. And anyway, so the whole notion was that they were, they were successful because when they moved to the other bank, well, the clients followed them. And they'd created this, this you know, trustworthy thing. So I'll, what I wanted to talk to you about, Mark, in this, when you brought it up about Schwab, was they've created a, a trustworthy brand. And then the internet experience came along. And, and can you talk through how they converted their offline business, because that was what it how it was created, into this online business, which is thriving. Well, you know, it's almost advantaged. Well, they were never one of the biggest that started on Wall Street. They didn't have the advantage of huge revenues from institutional investors. They did not have the advantage of large number of physical stores. They did not have the advantage of long-term face-to-face -face physical relationship with a broker. Mm -hmm. All of those things were considered a disadvantage, and it was really quite prescient and, and brilliant for Chuck Schwab to come up with the idea that from the very beginning, he was going to be a telephone-based service, that he was going to not assign a specific broker to a client, mm -hmm. but that he was going to have the company as a whole, as a team, take responsibility and have incentives in place to care for customers and to shift the what he always described as a conflict of interest that all brokers have because they're paid on the amount of churn on the velocity right. of transactions right. rather than on the outcomes or performance of the transactions in general that's how commissions work right. you get paid more the more you sell mm -hmm. and so he wanted to change the game where there was not an individual broker who was being compensated that way that the the Asset-based, fee-based advisory services were the most ethical. And so he actually helped assist a trend after one of the crashes, that last crash I just mentioned, mm -hmm. towards uh, independent fee-based financial advisors. And many of these guys might have been brokers in the past, maybe not. They were men and women who had come with a sense that if I get paid, I get paid more only when the value of all the assets go, goes up. A revolutionary idea at the time. And today, still more than half of all of Schwab's business is based on being white labeling 
products and services and facilitating as a marketplace, as an engine, mm -hmm. as a software platform, from the very earliest days, before there was online, before there was an internet, mm -hmm. he was already providing this base, this mm -hmm. back office for fee-based financial advisory services that were very sticky, that were very, in, very much entirely relationship-based. In fact, that's where the fees were paid as a percentage of that. And then he created a marketplace for mutual funds in the United States. Those are the investment funds and unit trusts that allow people to be able to participate in large baskets of equities. And those were done on a fee basis as well. And he would try to sell the no loads or the lower loads uh, so that he, he could provide a, a range of value options for the customer. And then finally, when the internet did come along, he decided to equalize pricing so that we could be agnostic as a company and realize that there isn't really an online customer and an offline customer per se, although at the time it would be easy to define them that way. Mm -hmm. That what you have is a customer. You have a relationship Beautiful. that's 24-7 mm -hmm. that's about taking care of you based on what your need is at the moment. Mm -hmm. Right now, you may not want to talk to anybody or see anybody. Just give me my cash out of the ATM. Just handle it for me. Let, I got to make. I got to cash a check and get the heck out of here. I don't want to have a conversation. And in the next moment, the customer is saying, "No, I don't want to open that retirement account online. I want to see somebody. I want to talk to somebody. I I, I don't understand. Or at least, could you uh, Skype with me and and mm -hmm. take me through this discussion? Because it's more complicated. There are many options. There are tax consequences. It's mm -hmm. my family. Mm -hmm. I'm not a Maybe I'm not an accountant or a lawyer. I, I need help here. So the, the, I think the epiphany that Chuck had early on was how can you use technology to increase intimacy with the customer mm -hmm. as opposed to just increase efficiency? Mm -hmm. Because it can do both. What you used to have in your relationship with the fromagerie in the corner in Paris was that she or he knew exactly what you wanted and had it ready for you and sweated it when they didn't have that particular product available. Oh, my God, will you right. be, would you be satisfied uh -oh. with X because right. I don't have Y this week? It sounds like Singapore Airlines. Yeah, exactly. And so the, the relationship ends up being the automation that Chuck constantly bet the company's net worth on a level of automation that would increase the intimacy and change the incentives so that the habits and behaviors of the brokers – we're on the same side as the customer. I think those two things were game changers that led to, you know, $3 trillion in customer assets. And when, when I was producing Schwab.com, I was executive producer for many years, being a person who is um, very much interested in giving access to the celebrity investment advisors, access to celebrity CEOs, using this wonderful online platform. I did, I did Steve Jobs' very first webinar. We did the very first webinar that, that Jeff Bezos did, the very first one that Jack Welch did. Mm. Uh, this was at the, before the turn of the century. Mm. Uh, and wow. it was because we wanted to find a way that we could bring you know, a million investors to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting because not everybody can travel there. Not right. everybody gets a front row seat because they don't have millions to invest. Mm. So how could we, in a sense, crowdsource the the, the fact that we had lots of little investors that add up to billions mm. and give them services as if we had one chunk of a billion mm. dollars to invest in your company mm -hmm. or in your investment plan. And, and so that's, uh, you know, th th that's about three or four different ways that Chuck really had this vision for changing the game for the little investor. And mm. I, I don't think people even realize I was interested, interested to see the other day I was on a panel and they, 
And one guy said, oh, I didn't realize that even Charles Schwab was a person <laughs> or, that, or that he still was alive. And I said, yeah, I guess I'm that old. Um, he, he is very much still a, 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 a driving and ethical and kind of spiritual force uh, in that business. And, and I've always been attracted to people like that because they, they, I think they got their original mojo from uh, the fact that they struggled in their youth. He's dyslexic. Mm -hmm. He knew that he was never going to be the smartest guy in the room in every capacity. So he ends up scaling a business faster out of Stanford Business School than probably any other guy did that graduate mm -hmm. year because mm -hmm. he never for a moment assumed that it was all about him. He had to recruit people mm -hmm. like you and me and yeah. others who had a vision as large as his that he could empower and engage and trust. And that's what Richard Branson does. And I think that started with his learning disabilities um, <laughs> the same way, you know. A common theme, right? With jobs is not, not graduating from university. Um, uh, Mark, I know you have to leave. So I, I wanted to ask you one more question, which, you know, uh, listening to you about Charles Schwab, um, Branson and, and jobs, it, these are the kind of people one will talk about an, an inspiring leadership, entrepreneur, they own the brand, they are the brand. The question I wanted to ask you was, if you're dealing with a mercenary, I want to call it mercenary, at least a, a non-founder CEO, guy yes. who's been parachuted in or has, you know, maybe he's 30 years in the company, sure. but that person, he or she, isn't, doesn't have the founder blood in him or her, might have PE backing and anyway has shareholder pressure and, and somehow just doesn't incarnate the brand and take the same risks that you will constantly see in a founder CEO. So right. working with that kind of a CEO, what kinds of, how do you dimension or approach bringing that fire and that entrepreneurial zest and learning that you incarnate yourself to them? Well, I think the most important thing is that people who are hired as professional managers, as you describe, they're really coming in to make the mission work. We have to connect the dots as coaches between the mission that they have or the outcomes that the private equity or the board of directors is looking for in terms of financial returns and tie that into the fact that the only thing that will differentiate your brand, product, or service right now will be the quality of the customer experience. That the, the customer experience uh, coming from the world that you do, uh, you probably have uh, started out your career with a greater level of, of depth of, of understanding of that because it's such an emotional Right. experience. But having that connection and realizing that there is a, retar uh, a return on, the ROI here is return on intimacy. Mm -hmm. It's a, an ability to connect for that professional manager the fact that the only way to get from here to there, the only way to see the transformation is to galvanize the customer experience that makes the customer stay and not click away. Uh, that makes the customer not accept $200 from the other guy uh, and, and keeps the business here. It, mm -hmm. it gives a reason for customers to come back and, in a sense, makes the people who provide customer service behave like owners because yeah. you're talking about these owner-operators. Right. But the, the ownership sense comes from being empowered to make decisions. So in the field, when the airline is letting you down, what is it that the people in the field can actually do for you rather than just to make excuses, do we give them the tools mm. to keep that customer? Mm. Do we give them the tools to make them so excited that they're, like I was that day with Singapore Airlines and Etihad, just tweeting it to everyone right. about how great they did rather than what a disaster and, and, and how dysfunctional that airline is. 
everybody who's a customer now has a bully pulpit, don't they? They have yeah. a platform. And so I think what the professional manager has to realize is we are all naked. We no longer have control. Mm -hmm. What we have to do is inspire our customers to want to be raving fans. And we, the only way to do that is to make our employees' teams feel like they own the customer experience. Mm -hmm. And so if we can create a platform that allows your call center mm -hmm. or the front uh, line receptionist at the bank yeah. uh, or the per anyone who answers the phone. Anyone uh, in touch with the customer. You're right there at uh, Zappos, right there in Las Vegas where right. you are right now. I remember taking that visit uh, with Tony Shea mm -hmm. and, and saying, you know, this last person on the line – she was on the phone for five hours with the customer, but that customer bought a thousand dollars worth of shoes and probably sold ten thousand dollars because she's an influencer and mm -hmm. tells everybody the best place to get the the Tom Ford shoes. Yeah. Um, and so, understanding that if we give the employees more uh, power yeah. to create a greater customer experience, that that is return on investment yeah. it is um, is not always an easy thing to sell. But I think there's enough disruption in the marketplace with the Ubers and the Airbnbs and with the Zappos of the world that, uh, you know, a, a retailer who might be traditional might have to look at the fact that the online customer experience is not just something to be tolerated, but something to be celebrated. Mark, beautiful. I know I, you know, gosh, I could be speaking with you for hours. Well, literally. we need, we need to have that cup of coffee. Let's, let's, let's definitely connect on this side of the pond or the other. I think, uh, I, I know that I'm going to be spending a lot of time there at the end of June uh, and into the summer, and then I'll be in New York. But And you're coming back to San Francisco soon, so let's definitely get together. So, Mark, there's a million things that people can read uh, of yours, which I'll put in the show notes. Um, what's the best way to connect? How would you prefer people to follow you and find out what you're up to? Well, I think it's easy to find me at, at my full name, www.markcthompson.com, M-A-R-K-C-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N.com. There you can find the books that we've written, the blogs, the uh, the LinkedIn profiles, all, all the ways that we are streaming out to the and paying forward to the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Our, we've got free research at markcthompson.com. So if you'd like to hear more about what goes on behind or the research upon which we based some of the comments we made today, this is all available there. Thank you. Fantastic day. You too. Thanks for checking in with me. Take care. Bye. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y. Where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, film me. All your colors any different way To rid me of the gray And heal me With all your imperfections That you mention in your Lack of self-security Oh, I wouldn't care about the
best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.